Hello, and welcome to the Limbic Educational Series on the CAR-T Revolution, where we take a look at this rapidly evolving treatment landscape. In this first of two episodes, we'll be discussing the unique approach to rolling out CAR-T in the UK and how that's developed over time. We'll also look at the decision-making process for eligible patients, logistical challenges that have been faced in implementation and the impact that COVID has had. Joining us to provide their expertise on these issues are Dr. Robin Sanderson, consultant hemato-oncologist and CAR-T lead at King's College Hospital NHS Foundation Trust, which were the first centre to offer the treatment in the UK. And we also have Caroline Besley, consultant hematologist specialising in bone marrow transplant and CAR-T cell therapy at University Bristol NHS Foundation Trust. So thank you both so much for talking to us about this today. Robin, I'd like to start with you. Can you start by taking us back to those early days when CAR-T services were first getting set up and the therapy was first being used on the NHS? I mean, if you go back to sort of 2017, 2018, when the pivotal trials were published, there was a huge amount of excitement in 2018 when, when we were given approval to go ahead, set up CAR-T services, um, and the National CAR-T Clinical Panel was formed. Now, I, I really, I, I would like to acknowledge my colleagues because they set up the CAR-T service at, at King's College Hospital whilst I was in academia, um, because King's had a lot of experience delivering phase one CAR-T uh, for a number of years before we took on the licensed product. So that 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 experience that we had really was, was vital because we had SOPs already written we had um, we had considered the service requirements and the different aspects of the CAR-T service that needed to be in place uh, to launch um, the commercial products. But nonetheless, it was a huge amount of work. I mean, um, when we were in the process of setup, basically there was a, a committee uh, that was that was established with all the relevant stakeholders in the hospital, and we met very very regularly to provide uh, you know um, impetus and. And motivation to, to setting up the, the, the services is really quickly because you just need a lot of buy-in from, from different parts of the hospital. So specifically things like neurology input, intensive care input, a lot of discussion about beds in intensive care, um, uh, obviously apheresis capacity, uh, discussion about how we do beds, um, how you do ambulatory care, um, quality are an essential part of any stem cell um, cellular therapy service. So there was there was widespread discussion um, within the department. And I think most new centres, um, if they're trying to set up CAR-T centres, will, will need that widespread buy-in to be able to set up a successful service. Yes, absolutely. And you mentioned there that independent expert panel that's one of the particularly unique aspects of how this service works with the centres that are involved. Can you explain um, sort of how that operates in practice and, and what, if anything, around that sort of structural process has changed over time? I mean, I think this was a novel um, proposition from NHS England. Normally, for expensive drugs, we would approve them ourselves using a Bluetech form. But in this case, for us to fill in a blue tech form, we have to have, have approval from the National CAR-T Clinical Panel. So that panel comprises a chair, um, two other ex, uh, UK experts, two lay members who are both have a you know, huge amount of expertise, actually um, personal experience with lymphoma. And then people like myself and Caroline, <clears throat> we, we, we present patients to the CAR-T panel, um, but we are not the voting members. So 
we have to fill in a form um, which demonstrates that patients have met all the criteria required by NHS England to be reimbursed for CAR-T. Obviously, any centre can't do this. You have to be a recognised uh, treatment centre, so you have to have passed uh, the NHS England um, criteria um, and you have to be onboarded by the relevant CAR-T companies to be able to infuse. And the panel was set up um, December 2018 and you know, it, it's actually been, I would say, you know, really a very positive experience because it's allowed us to share experience. Um, it's allowed us to apply very uniform standards to who's accepted for CAR-T. It allows for equitative access. So there's, there's many features of this panel that are very unique, um, even for high cost drugs that we use already in hematology. Um, that, that, and this process has just continued um, since, since the early days. And you also mentioned, Robin, the equity of access, which I think is, again, one of the sort of unique features about how the service operates. Um, can you provide any insight into how that compares with some other countries and the way that CAR-T has been made available um, sort of in, in Europe or the US? I mean, the original centres that were chosen, there was a, there was a real attempt to distribute um, the CAR-T centres around um, the country so people would be able to travel the minimum amount of time. Now, unfortunately, patients still do have to travel because uh, the initial number of centres doesn't capture every, every you know, tiny corner of the country. And, and you know, I think patients travelling for CAR-T centres is something that will be improved more as we get more CRT centres over the next year. Nonetheless, you know, it, it, there was a big effort made to, to make access as easy as possible. And, and even if you just look at the maps that are published in EBMT from other Western European countries that deliver in CRT, <clears throat> um, you can see there's a distribution around the UK, um, except unfortunately Northern Ireland, where if you look at the the other countries that are delivering CAR-T, um, there is probably more centralisation. You know, France have um, uh, a lot of experience giving CAR-T because they had compassionate access. Um, and I, I, I believe the uh, their early experience was very centralised in Paris by the looks of it. So, you know, NHS England really tried very hard um, for us to us to make this as even as possible. And I think there's been success there, but there's definitely work still to be done. Okay, so Caroline, we've we've gone from sort of a handful of centres in those early days to now 10 across England um, providing CAR-T for adults uh, with lymphoma, as well as 12 for children and young people. Um, and more in the process of coming in on board, as we've heard over the next year. And it's also expanded into Scotland and Wales and centres now in Cardiff and Glasgow. So, Caroline, can you tell us more about the experience of Bristol in becoming a centre and how you prepared for that? So um, we weren't quite as lucky as uh, Kings in that we hadn't uh, had that early phase one experience of CAR T cell studies, although we've got a lot of experience in other cellular therapy trials. Um, so for us, it, we had to start really right from scratch. So it was obviously really exciting time, but, but quite challenging as well. So um, there was a huge amount of work put into kind of reaching out to centres who had experience both in the UK and in the US, um, learning from them, getting all those protocols done. And then as Robin's sort of as outlined, really getting all the right people in a room, um, setting up that kind of team ethic really around the, the CAR-T delivery. Um, and we had to go through a process that, which I think most trusts will 
in the UK will be familiar with of putting forward a business case to the trust and asking them for the kind of staffing support that we would need. And that really was where my job was created from uh, as being the kind of dedicated car T consultant. So there's a lot of kind of setting up the infrastructure to be done initially. And that, you know, that took um, the team quite a bit of time. But once that was in place, I think then we kind of really needed to shift the focus to education and training. So training up your staff, making sure that they're familiar with all the new guidance um, and also reaching out to the referring centres, because obviously they were the people that were going to be sending their patients our way. This is a new therapy may not have been entirely clear to people which patients we were wanting to see and how that process was going to work. So a lot of kind of reaching out, meeting with the teams in the referring centres, letting them know that we were going to be open for business and how everything was going to work. Um, and uh, and then obviously, as we kind of started to get going with the initial patients, sort of really reviewing each patient as they went through, just to make sure that we were happy with how things were going um, with a lot of uh, support from our ITU team, who've been, I have to say, absolutely fantastic. And and that's definitely one of the relationships I think that I would recommend new centres to work on, because in those early days when you're unfamiliar with the toxicities, it's really nice to have your ITU consultant colleague on the hand to help you out. Absolutely. Uh, and you talked about the work that you've done with those referring centres there. Sort of what sort of um, things do those referring a patient for CAR-T need to know about the process? Were there any sort of unforeseen complications or barriers or sort of things that you had to find or questions perhaps that you hadn't expected from those referring centers about how to access that care so i think there's kind of two aspects really with the referring centers there's the the part about patient selection and making sure that you're getting the right patients referred to you and also that they're not potentially missing patients that might benefit from the treatment um, and then there's kind of a, a, a giving them an understanding around the timescales, because this is a treatment that has very different timescales from what we're used to with other treatments in haematology um, and why those timescales are as they are and the complexity of the process. Um, and I think, you know, as with most things, it's about keeping those lines of communication open and regular updates. Um, I think probably the, the biggest barrier initially um, in terms of referral was was just trying to yeah, get the eligibility criteria out there so people were aware of which patients we were looking at. And I think there was probably a hesitation um, around sort of what is the upper age limit? That was a, a question quite often. Is this patient too old for CAR-T, for example? Um, and I think that's something that we've learned more about as time has gone on. Um, but really the biggest barrier tends to be the, just the nature of the disease that these patients have, the kind of pace of it and the refractoriness of it, um, which means that you really need to identify them as soon as possible. So we've done a lot of work around saying early discussion, um, even at the point when you suspect there's been a relapse before you've confirmed it, or if you've got a patient who's behaving in a high risk way earlier on in their treatment, getting in there early and just discussing with the CAR-T centre. And, and I think that message is definitely out there. Um, for us in the Southwest, because we're really the only centre that, that covers a lot of the Southwest Peninsula, as Robin was saying, we, do, we, we don't have another CAR-T centre down in Plymouth yet, although we hope that they'll be opening soon. That does mean that for some patients who are down 
sort of Truro way or further down in deepest Cornwall, they're having to travel a hell of a long way. That has put some people off the treatment, not very many, but it, but it, it has been a concern for some patients. Um, I mean, I'm going to ask this next question to you as well, Caroline, because it leads on quite nicely from um, what you were saying there. That, that CAR-T is a, it's a really highly complex treatment to give, um, you know, hence the everything that's had to go into setting up uh, the centres. But part of that is, I imagine, obtaining this individualised product in the first place. So how, how smoothly has that side of things been? For those who don't know, can you explain a bit how that works? So, yeah, the pathway is it's got a lot of steps in it and a lot of teams that have to be involved both within and without the hospital. So, um, I mean, if we go right from the start, there's our initial kind of patient assessment step when we'll see the patient and, and assess them. And if we feel that they're appropriate, then they go to the panel. And in the vast majority of cases, we'll get panel approval. Um, and then at that, at that point, uh, you can start to book your manufacturing. So sometimes we can actually do that in advance if we're pretty certain that we're going to get approval and we want to move ahead. Um, and then it's a kind of a case of coordinating. When does the manufacturer have a slot? When does our apheresis unit have a slot? Um, when can we get the patient back up into the hospital to kind of have, have appropriate blood tests and things? So we've got a fantastic coordinator who kind of jiggles all of those things. Um, and we generally can move to get the cells collected within um, the kind of space of two weeks from the, from the patient being kind of initially seen and approved by the panel. Um, but I think as time has gone on and actually we're seeing more and more patients coming through, that capacity in apheresis and even with the manufacturers is starting to be a bit more strained. So trying to line up those kind of appointments and, and those slots together is, is occasionally tricky. Um, the manufacturers, I have to say, have been great in terms of communicating with us, making it sort of very obvious to us when the slots are available and telling us sort of about any issues with manufacturing. Um, so we kind of we do have a, a good relationship with them in terms of communication and the timescales for the manufacturer are starting to come down a little bit. So initially we were really looking at four weeks, but that, that is coming down as they've been able to open new facilities in Europe. Um, I think, unfortunately, at the moment, because of our capacity constraints, we're not necessarily seeing so much of the benefit from that improvement in manufacturing time. But I hope as, as time goes on, we'll be able to get those timescales down because I think that will be really beneficial um, to the patients. Um, but obviously, at each of these points, we need to be communicating with the referring centre because they're looking after the patient while we're waiting for the cells and they're potentially administering bridging therapy and, and other kind of supportive treatments to the patient and obviously keeping the patient in the loop so they're not wondering what's going on. And this is probably a good time and I'll, I'll ask this question to you Robin to talk about uh, the impact that Covid had or may still be having um, on the service itself, capacity. I mean initially lots of parts of the NHS um, shut down when we were in that first lockdown and um, what what happened with the delivery of CAR-T at that time? I mean there's two sides to it there's the sort of the, the generic aspects of the service um, you know obviously all the precautions that we're taking uh, the banning of visitors for a long period of time and still even now it's it's quite reduced 
um, staff vaccination, staff testing, you know, contact tracing within staff, all, all these sort of things are sort of generic things I think most hematology departments have done. In terms of the CAR-T service, I wouldn't say we ever stopped, but we certainly slowed down. So particularly during during the, the peaks of the, of the, of the various waves, um, if patients had a viable bridging strategy so we could keep them out of hospital for a bit longer, then we would do that. Um, there were some patients that we that just had to carry on. I mean, the nature of CAR-T patients is that they have refractory disease and some of them just can't wait. So certainly during the first wave, I remember we had a couple of patients that we did carry on and we just had to say to the patient, no, there is a risk um, of a lack of intensive care beds. But at the time I felt we, we had to carry on because their disease was not controlled. And thankfully, we didn't have any, any major issues, actually. One of the things NHS England did, which was incredibly helpful at the time, was as they, they changed the rules about how early we could intervene with tocilizumab for cytokine release syndrome, um, with the hope that this would mean we could keep people out of intensive care. Now, this was obviously not done in a sort of clinical trial type way, so it's, it's hard to say that definitively, but I, I, you know, it has, I think, been very helpful for us to have more flexibility on how we approach CAR T toxicity management. Because um, I think early intervention seems to be the general theme uh, when you look at CAR T toxicity and what's, what's been published. Um, also, earlier use of steroids, I think, helps in this regard. So we were, we were very successful actually in keeping people out of intensive care and, and, and we had to prioritize a bit, but we, we, we kept going a bit um, at a slower rate during, during the waves. And was there any impact on the manufacturing side of things, on the pharmaceutical companies who were delivering um, the product, the treatment? Broadly, broadly, no. I, I mean, I think I think we. I remember we had one patient that was delayed a little bit because I think I think they had issues at their end. But I, I mean, I think by and large, actually, they they fulfilled their requirements um, for manufacturing, and I think the, the logistics side. I mean, quite, the companies have done well in, the, with, in terms of the logistics. They they have been able to to meet the requirements that they've set. I mean, as Caroline mentioned, the manufacturing times have come down. Um, but yeah, I think COVID has not, COVID, was, COVID has obviously had a lot of pressure within the NHS service itself, but I think that aspect of things was, was okay. Fantastic. Um, I mean, the the next uh, topic that I wanted to move on to, Robin, was the, the way that the system has been set up in the UK has meant rigorous data collection as part of that service. So how important has that been in informing and developing our understanding of the use of CAR-T in this real world setting? So, I mean, a real strength of the National CAR-T Clinical Panel is we now have a group of patients treated in the UK that were selected all in exactly the same way using the same criteria. And another thing that's sometimes missing from CAR-T real world data is, is the question, what is the denominator? Most CAR-T trials have really highlighted, you know, what happens to the infused patients. But actually, the intention to treat population is, is more interesting because, you know, in a real world setting, yes, CAR-T is an excellent treatment, but some patients don't make it to infusion, usually because their disease is too aggressive and they progress too much. So knowing how many patients fall off and don't make it to infusion actually is quite an important piece of information because all patients who have CAR-T in the UK go to the panel and then 
filter infusion later, we know what the denominator is and we know how many patients drop off. And that allows us to sort of monitor our performance and monitor the way, the way we get patients through the pathway to try and get as many patients to infusion as possible. Um, so I think that's something that's, that's a real strength of the UK data. Do we know sort of how many patients have been treated so far in the UK? Um, what's the kind of most up-to-date information we have on that? So in terms of the number of patients that have been um, reviewed at panel, I think we're, we're up to about uh, 900 now, actually. But uh, in terms of what data is formally out there, um, the NCCP structure has allowed us to collect data prospectively. Um, actually, the UK experience is, is just in the process of being published. So I believe the UK experience that is going to be um, uh, published soon is, is, is in reference to the first 400 approved patients, which equates to the first 300 infused patients. Um, and really, that the paper that's about to be out is it covers many aspects. So, you know, it covers uh, the, the performance of the different products in terms of PFS and overall survival. There's stuff about toxicity, how the pathway works, um, and uh, the, really the title of the paper is is regarding regarding a sort of national CAR T service. Um, so that's that's just about to come out in BJ Heem. Oh, fantastic. We'll look out for that. I mean, you mentioned toxicity there. I think this is something that I'll probably uh, want to ask both of you about on your experience at this. I'll come to, to Robin first, because I know you presented some data on this at the, uh, the recent um, VHS conference. Um, what have we learned about how to manage toxicities associated with this treatment? Is it, as you were discussing before, about perhaps... Um, you know, treating earlier, managing earlier, spotting signs at an earlier stage and keeping people out of ICU where possible? So the, uh, again, a benefit of the National CAR-T Clinical Panel data collection um, resulted in the real world data I was just discussing, but it's also allowed us uh, to have sort of sub-projects. So uh, one project I've been looking at is, is the National CAR-T Toxicity Experience. Um, so that was presented at ASH and, and again recently at BSH. And I think one of the main themes that we see is, is there is definitely a, a difference in toxicity profile between the two lymphoma products. We know that. We know that they have different constructs, different co-stimulated domains. So that is an expected um, observation. Um, when the when the pivotal trials were done, um, the the way toxicity management was 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 um, directed in a very restricted way by the trial protocol. And actually, what we see in real world practice is that there's much more liberal use of tocilizumab and steroids, um, and probably there's earlier use of steroids now than than in those trials. And and uh, and that has resulted actually in in significantly less uh, severe toxicity if you compare our real world data to the pivotal trials. So what's really noticeable is that I think. Two benchmark figures that I, I think are important are the rates of grade three and above cytokine release syndrome and neurotoxicity, because grade three and above really means patients that go to intensive care with that toxicity. So CRS with the two products is quite similar, but also a lot less than reported in the trials. Um, neurotoxicity is greater for Axacel, that's expected with a CD 
CAR T, but um, I think our grade three CRS rate was about um, was around 19, 20%, which is significantly less than was reported in Zuma one. So I think what we're seeing is in real world practice that Ashikati is safer. Um, and that's really reassuring and a really important message um, to get out there. And Caroline, is that um, has that been your experience as well? You know, is, has that process of how you've managed toxicities in your patients evolved over time as your sort of experience has grown with that? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, um, I mean, I don't know if it's the right phrase, but I think we're certainly more comfortable with the management of these toxicities um, now. And uh, we have shifted to a much earlier use of tocilizumab and steroids. Um, I think one other thing that I'd kind of say is that the the NCCP structure has fostered a really kind of collegiate attitude amongst the, the CAR-T delivery centres. And so for those patients where you do get maybe unexpected toxicity or or very severe toxicity, um, that has meant that we've got a, a really strong network that we can reach out to to kind of discuss those cases where you're sort of, because we've got very set protocols um, on how we kind of go through escalating the treatment as we kind of go up the grades. But once you get to grade four and you've given all your treatments, then you're sort of a bit like, ah, what do we do next? So that odd patient where that happens, and thankfully it's really not very many as Robin has kind of described, um, it's the NCCP has given us that network that we can reach out to those other centers. So for example, I will often message Robin and say, have you come across this before? And, and what did you do? And that, I think that kind of uh, knowledge sharing and experience sharing within the centers has also been incredibly valuable for those unusual or, or slightly um, more tricky toxicities that we've seen. Uh, and this is another question along a similar theme that I think is probably one for both of you. Um, but Caroline, I'll come to you first. So what, what is our current understanding, I suppose, of how to identify patients who are most likely to have those durable responses? Have we still got a lot to learn there? Or, you know, are we already kind of refining, I suppose, the, the patients that we know will benefit the most uh, from this treatment? So I think there's been some really interesting data presented at the ASH meeting last December. Um, and we have uh, tried to look at this within the NCCP group as well and have that data will be in the paper that Robin's already mentioned. So I think there are some, some things that we do now know as a kind of CAR-T community internationally that can be associated with um, less durable response or um, less likely to achieve a complete remission. Um, a lot of those things tend to be around the kind of aggressiveness and bulk of the disease. So certainly multiple groups have shown that high LDH or LDH above the upper limit of normal is associated with inferior and less durable responses. The French have looked specifically at um, total metabolic tumor volume, which again, as a marker of kind of disease bulk and activity. Um, so those things are you know, we, we can potentially pick out patients that um, may be destined to do less well. Um, I think uh, what, what we don't have, though, is, is very good biomarkers that will kind of identify those patients very early on when they're being referred for CAR-T, because most of these markers we're looking at at the point of admission for their CAR-T therapy, by which point, you know, it's too late, you've seen the patient, you've made the cells. So I think we we probably don't have markers that 
would necessarily influence our patient selection at this point. Um, but we do have some markers that would help us um, around patient counselling and sort of expectations of, of what the response is likely to be. Um, and obviously all of these have been studied at this point where we're looking at therapy after failure of second line. And as CAR T cells move forward in lines of therapy, do we know whether those sort of indicators are still going to hold true? Um, that's that's kind of my feeling. Okay, so same question to you there, Robin, about sort of identifying those patients most likely to have those durable responses and what we've what we've learned over the past few years about that. Yeah, I mean, Caroline's done a good job at identifying um, some of the issues there because you know things like high LDH. It's it's interesting, but often we've already made the decision before it's useful in a way. Um, because we sort of assess patients for CAR-T um, quite early in the pathway. And because the pathway is quite complicated, there's a lot of things that can happen um, that can sort of make them more likely to not respond to CAR-T in a way. I think one thing, one thing that was interesting um, in the national CAR-T toxicity data is actually it's quite evident that the patients who are less likely to do well from, from an efficacy point of view are also more likely to have severe toxicity. So from the ASH abstract, we identified risk factors such as a high LDH on infusion day, um, poor performance status, or patients who progress through bridging uh, therapy as people being more likely to have severe CAR-T toxicity, so be it grade three and above CRS or neurotoxicity. So there is work to be done, um, I think, for these sort of ultra-high-risk patients because they're less likely to do well with CAR-T and more likely to have tox. So I think that's, that's, that's probably the, the work in progress, I think, that maybe the CAR-T community should, should focus on. Yeah, so there are definitely aspects to kind of refine yeah. how we offer that care there. Um, so, yeah, just to finish up this episode, I'm going to ask both of you to reflect, I suppose, on kind of how far you think we've come in the past three or so years. Um, and also, I suppose, the, the aspect that I think you're perhaps most interested in or excited about in terms of developments that we're expecting over maybe the next three years. Robin, I'll come to, to you first on that one. I mean, just expanding indications, I think, I think is really exciting. I mean, we, we, we've started... Uh, uh, mantle cell CAR-T, which has been really interesting because it's it's not exactly the same. The toxicity feels a little bit different. Um, the bridging is much more involved, um, but interesting because there's problems to be solved. Um, there's a number of CAR-T indications uh, potentially going to expand, uh, follicular lymphoma, ALL, will CAR-T be brought forward to second line? So these are things that I am really interested in um, you know, over the next year, because because basically it's all just more CAR T, and and uh, I suppose the challenges that come with it is how how do we facilitate it in terms of capacity or trying to move more of the care um, into an ambulatory care setting. Yes, absolutely, and not to forget all those new CAR T centres that are hopefully coming online in the next year. So, Caroline, I'll come to you with that question as well. Sort of, are you do you think where at this moment in time, where you expected us to be in terms of delivery of CAR-T and, and what are you most excited about um, going forward? So I think um, for me, 
things have moved much more quickly than maybe I anticipated. Um, particularly sort of with those new indications, they seem to be coming thick and fast, despite the kind of disruptions of the COVID pandemic. So I think the whole field is is really moving at an incredible speed that perhaps I hadn't anticipated. But that obviously makes it really kind of exciting and, and a wonderful thing to be a part of. And the more patients that we can get this treatment out to, the better. Um, I think we're busier than I perhaps anticipated as well. So we had some kind of projections of where we thought we'd be at two and three years. And I think um, we've probably exceeded those. Um, so, you know, as Robin said, is like actually going forward as these new indications hopefully come online in the NHS, how are we going to manage that capacity? Um, and how do we kind of help those new centres come on board to sort of, because they're, they're going to have to deal with all the indications at once whereas we've had the luxury of kind of learning <laughs> with diffuse large v-cell lymphoma and the few ALL patients and then moving on to mantle cell they're kind of going to get everything all at once so um I think what's going to be invaluable there is is the real collegiate kind of atmosphere that has been fostered through the NCCP I think um there are a lot of fantastic hematologists in the UK that are keen to to work together in this field and hopefully that's going to provide a great support network for those new centres. I would just add about trials, actually. One thing I didn't mention is, is there's still huge opportunities for us to do really original things as well, not just not delivering commercial CAR-T and what the NHS allows us to do. You know, there's academic studies, there's phase one, there's the new products from commercial as well. Because um, what we've just talked about really is, is, is things where there's actually evidence for already and there's, there's many things to come in terms of uh, you know, novel CAR constructs and things like this. Yes, and I imagine that the way that those centres are, that the centres uh, have already been set up actually puts us in a good position to get really involved in that research and to be carrying out those trials. Yeah, definitely. Well. I mean, we've got phase one, phase two stuff planned, so that's really exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Same at Bristol. So we're, we're quite excited to see a couple of new, new products coming to us for trials soon. Great. Well, that's a very, very optimistic place to uh, upbeat place to to leave us today. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. It's been fascinating to hear sort of what it takes to deliver a CAR T service and and how it all works. And um, in our second episode of this series, we will be discussing more around this uh, bright future of availability and new indications treatments within the CAR T world, as well as uh, funding issues. And we will be talking about that with Dr. Graham Collins from Oxford and Dr. Francis Seymour from Leeds. So hopefully that will follow on seamlessly from this episode uh, and do seek it out. But bye for now.